Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Amen. So open up to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18. And we're going to pick up at verse 20. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. And when they told Saul, the thing was agreeable to him. And Saul thought, I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him. And that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David for a second time, you may be my son-in-law today. Then Saul commanded his servants, speak to David secretly, saying, behold, the king delights in you and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words to David. But David said, is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and lightly esteemed? The servants of Saul reported him according to these words which David spoke. Saul then said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. When his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Before the days had expired, David rose up and went, he and his men, and struck down 200 men among the Philistines. Then David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, for a wife. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle, and it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, though his name was highly esteemed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. So, just a quick recap of what's come before this. Goliath challenges Israel, right, in chapter 17, and David takes action and cuts off the head of Goliath and uh, is scandalized that the people of God would allow the name of God to be dragged through the mud by an uncircumcised Philistine. And then last time, you remember, we talked about the, um, the relationship that developed between David and Jonathan, that, that true godly friendship, and uh, the covenant that David and Jonathan made with one another that would lead them through the time periods ahead. And, um, and then we saw that Saul was, was uh, getting more and more stirred up by this evil spirit from the Lord and uh, working against David. Uh, Saul is now entirely given over to his jealousy and bitterness. The women have been singing that song, Saul has slain his thousands and David is ten thousands. And and he's just, Saul's whole life is revolving around this young punk, David. 
as he sees it. Now Samuel has already anointed David as king, and he has already Samuel the prophet has already announced to Saul that Saul has has lost his kingship. And if you remember in the last last section, right before this, that um, David is offered by Saul his older daughter, Merib. And um, you remember what was offered to the man who would kill Goliath, right? Saul had offered his daughter to the man who would, who would slay Goliath. And so now, now Merib is offered and David refuses, and then along comes Michael. Along comes Michael, and the first thing we read about in this passage is this. Now, Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. He read no such thing about Merib, and Merib was quickly given to another man. But here's Michael um, being, this is new information. She, she, has, uh, she loves David. She has great affection for him. We don't know what led to such intense emotion in her other than David's been around and David's been serving her father. Um, So we don't know what led to that intense feeling, but um, it would seem that it was very short-lived. That affection that she had for him was short-lived. We know what comes down the road and the bitterness that Michael has toward David mocking him as he dances before the Lord, right? That's not too off in the future. Um, So, uh, and after not much turmoil, in fact, she is given, Michael is given to another man by Saul. Um, That only after David has taken two other wives. Anybody name those two other wives of David? Abigail's one of them. No one remembers the other one. Ahinoam. Um, remember? Yeah, remember that? So Abigail and Ahinoam. And in Samuel, in 2 Samuel 6.16, we read this. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Right, so here the first the first word associated between Michael and David is love, and there at the end, um, it says that she despises him. And you remember what happens to Michael because she despised him and despised the Lord. She was then barren for the rest of her life. Right, she was cursed by being barren. But here, right at the beginning. Saul's daughter loves David and um, is pursuing him. And then we read, so now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. And when they told Saul, the thing was agreeable to him. Now, of course, the thing is agreeable to him because he's scheming. It's exactly how he was scheming with his older daughter. He was going to exact a dowry from David, and David was going to have to go into battle with the Philistines. And hopefully, you know, by the... The, um, you know, chances are that David would fall in battle and he wouldn't have to deal with David anymore. Um, so he, he's doing that again now with his younger daughter. Uh, for some reason, uh, David, David uh, 
doesn't accept the older daughter. And now we're moving on to the younger daughter. When they told Saul the thing was agreeable to him, Saul thought, I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him. That she may become a snare to him. And that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Um, notice, notice that word, that Saul hopes that, that David's, that Michael will be a snare to David. Either this is referring to the fact that the offer of Michael will lead to his death. Like she's, the whole situation is a snare. It's a trap. It's a trap just to get rid of David. You know, so it, it could be that, or it could be that, that Saul knows something of David and is appealing to David's lust, which would indeed later become a snare to David, certainly with another woman, not with Michael. Um, or it could mean that it, it's, it's referring to Michael's character. He knows his daughter. He knows that his daughter will not be a good wife, right? So he, it's this, she is going to be a snare to him. She was, after all, an idolater. Um, Michael took household idols and laid it on the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair at its head and covered its clothes. That comes in the next chapter. So she has household idols. Those are the idols that she uses in order to protect David at one point. But nonetheless, she has idols. And so, um, did Saul know something of the character of his daughter as an idolater and perceive that she would then become a stumbling block to David? David's whole, whole reputation is wrapped around being a man after God's own heart, having been the one who would not allow the name of God to be dishonored, and so took down the giant. And now he says, okay, David, see if you can overcome the snare of my daughter. It's going to involve your lust, it's going to involve idols, it's going to involve affection, it's going to involve closeness, it's going to involve marriage. You slayed Goliath, but maybe you can't slay Michael. Um, and so I think, I think Saul has in mind any combination of those things. Certainly it's the initial one where he wants David to die trying to get the dowry. It's just a scheme to get David out of the picture. Um, he wanted to draw David, ultimately what Saul wanted to do is draw David away from the Lord. If God was going to leave him, Saul reasoned, he would do what he could to make David leave God. That's what he was going to do. Then Saul commanded his servants, 22, speak to David secretly, saying, Behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. What is that? What's that? That's not anything you ever do, is it? Butter people up. Fatten people up for the slaughter, right? Manipulation, big time. Saul is using, is commanding his servants, not even him, but his servants to go to David in secret, not in front of other people, so these things can't be disconfirmed or whatever. Speak to David secretly saying, behold, the king delights in you. Is that true? He just tried to stick two spears through his skull. He does appreciate the music that David offers to him. Um, 
So there is that, but nonetheless, he's think of all those adjectives we went through last time. There's so much hatred that Saul has toward David. And so here now he's sending other people to, to uh, deceive David and to uh, soften him up. The king delights in you. All his servants love you. Everybody loves you, David. That's the problem. That's what Saul hates about David. The women are dancing in the streets, singing of his praise. And now he's going he's gonna to use it. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. The king dreads David. The king wants David dead. The king is jealous of David. There is no love here. There is no love. So 23, so Saul's servants spoke these words to David. They go, they're obedient. They go to him and say, look, the king loves you. The servants love you. We all love you. But David said, David responds this way, is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law? Since I am a poor man and lightly esteemed. What did he say when Merib was offered to him? Look back about four or five verses. What does he say? Yeah, who am I? And, and what's my family that I should be the, the son-in-law of the king? Basically the same thing that he says here. You know, do you think it's a light thing to become the, the king's uh, son-in-law? Uh, and... and Especially given the fact that I'm a nobody. I'm, a, I'm from a poor family and uh, we are lightly esteemed. Do you think that's going to go over well with the people? Do you think that's strategically a good thing to do for the kingdom? But beyond that, will it go well for me? Will it go well for me, David, the poor man? David gives some, he gives the same objection that he gave before. It's not a trivial matter to become the king's son-in-law when your family is nothing. Uh, now, is, is David being, is David's been anointed. David has been anointed for the king. Is, he, is this false humility? What's going on here? I mean, there's so many layers to that when you try to keep together all the different strains. Because David's been anointed as king. He's, he, he's famous. He's slayed Goliath. Is, he, is this false humility that he's saying, oh, poor little me, poor little family, we're, we're from the boondocks, um, you know, down from, the, from Alabama. And so, you know, this is, yeah, and this is Saul's entire problem with David. He is too esteemed. He's too esteemed. Um, or is, you know, and so is David being falsely modest here, or is David being wise, refusing to not, um, refusing, you know, to not see Saul's violence for what it is, which is just deadly jealousy. Um, his relationship would only get more complicated, think of this, when Saul becomes his father-in-law. Uh, <laughs> you know, can I get an amen? Um, <laughs> I mean, that, that, that is not a trivial thing. It's not a trivial thing for any man to become the king's, to become a son-in-law. But to become the king's son-in-law is another level up. And if you're David and you're becoming the king, the Saul's son-in-law, well, it's a mess. 
an absolute mess. Uh, Or is David objecting that he cannot possibly provide the dowry expected of the king's daughter? Um, what uh, What is not trivial is the cost, perhaps. He's thinking, 100 foreskins of the Philistines. Very strange dowry. Um, and uh, that's what, where it goes to next. The servants of Saul in 24 reported to him according to these words which David spoke. So the servants of Saul go back to, to Saul and say, David objected once again. He, he thinks, you know. And Saul then said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So one more attempt by Paul. He names the dowry 100 foreskins of the Philistines. And, you know, what's the meaning of that? (laughs) What is the meaning of that? Well, here's what one commentary said, and I found it helpful. Uh, It gets a little bit um, mystical. All right, Saul demanded 100 Philistine foreskins as a dowry for Michael, and this picks up on an implicit theme that has been running through several chapters. Saul was at Gilgal on both occasions when Samuel announced that he was being cut off from the kingdom. So in Gilgal, Saul was told that you're you're going to be cut off from the kingdom. Um, Gilgal was the place where Israel was circumcised when they entered the land. Originally, when they entered into the land across the Jordan, that's where they were circumcised. And that circumcision, remember the passage, Joshua 5, removed the reproach of Egypt from them. Okay, so Saul's sin brought reproach on Israel again. He's making Israel sin. The reproach is returning to Israel, as did the continuing threat of the Philistines. For David, the problem was that an uncircumcised Philistine could mock the living God without being challenged, Saul did nothing to remove that reproach, to remove the reproach of Goliath from the people. But David did, not only defeating Goliath, but by circumcising the Philistines. So all of this, him going down and killing not just 100, but 200, David is beginning to act like the king. He's doing what Saul refused to do. He's taking away the reproach Like when they were circumcised, when they came into the land, the reproach of Egypt, he's taking off the reproach of the Philistines. That's the main enemy of Israel at this time period. So so there's more here than just weirdness, like that's a strange dowry. I think this this is more, this is a test that Saul thought David would fail and God makes David succeed and it's exactly a kingly task. It's killing the enemy. It's killing the enemy. That's exactly what he's done here. So again, this commentator says, the hero kills and stops the enemy to win the bride and to renew the land. And also, very simply, this is an attempt to put David in harm's way. Saul is using his promise of his daughter as a scheme to get David out of the picture. These are not genuine offers of his daughter's. Think of that. These are not genuine offers of these daughters. Those are lures in order to get David to go out to battle. He wants David dead. 26, when his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. 
So after he hears about the dowry, he then accepts. Before the days had expired, David rose up and went. He and his men and struck down 200 men among the Philistines. Then David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full number to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, for a wife. Again, it seems that David is intrigued by the bride price, by the dowry. He's intrigued by it, and, and when that's offered, he goes forward and accepts. Um, I, I can't imagine, I mean, I had to make a phone call to ask for my wife's hand, and it was painful, and I wanted to die. But if he had told me to go out and kill a hundred Philistines and bring back their foreskins as a dowry, I'm not sure... Um, I'm sure I probably would have hung up the phone for a start. I probably wouldn't have given up the girl, but I would have hung up the phone. Um, what, you know, so what intrigues David about this, this um, contest, in a sense? Was it the attainable price or the adventure right, that intrigued David? Or was it that David, David was, was becoming king? was David knew what his role in Israel would be. And so, yes, he takes this on because he wants to remove the reproach of the Philistines from the people of God. It was the name of God, right? It's the name of God that motivates King David. And we see that time and time again. Yes, he sins. Yes, he, he, he uh, works against the name of God at, at uh, two very pointed points in his life. But nonetheless, we see a man of faith going after the na- uh, raising up the name of God. He saw another way to remove Israel's reproach. Um, it's all about God with David, isn't it? Seems like it's all about God with David. Um, what an example. Do you have God in mind in all that you do, right? Do you stop and consider your ways and whether or not they glorify God? Is this... Is this, bringing, is this lifting up the name of God? In this circumstance, is my behavior is, is the task I'm called to, a way for God's name to be magnified. Um, what about your ways, your attitudes, your decisions, all those things? With David, it seems that, at least in this point of his life, all he did was to magnify the name of God. So David does it. He's intrigued by it, he, whatever we want to call it. He's, he's uh, being kingly about it. He's approaching it as a, as a warrior and as king. And then 28, when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. One more way we see the Lord standing against Saul, isn't it? His scheming ends up not working. His scheming ends up not working and actually working against him. Right? All this scheming, the killing of the Philistines to pay the dowry ended up undoubtedly expanding the esteem people had for David. Because here he is bringing back this ridiculous bride price and doubling it. (laughs) Doubling that bride price. And so his esteem is growing and now... And now Saul's daughter loves David. 
and will not uh, assist Saul in David's destruction. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Now think of Saul. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. He's pretty much hit all six, right? All seven. Yea, all seven he's hit. (laughs) Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Saul is is an abomination to God now. Where where at at the beginning, Saul would show some deference and some worthy character. Now he's fully given over to his sin. Saul is proving himself hateful in the eyes of the Lord. And 1 Samuel 18.30 says, Then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle. And it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul. For his name was highly esteemed. Think of this. Even though Saul is throwing spears at David and he's going and David is going in and out of battle, David is protected. All through it, David is protected. Uh, and, and that got me thinking uh, along these lines. Just just thinking about the protection of the Lord that God gives to his people and God gave to David. Does God promise to protect his servants? Does God promise to protect his people? Does he? Should be a hearty, resounding yes, an unequivocal sort of yes and amen. Yes, right? Um, Have you ever considered that there are many, many times that he has protected you? Many, 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 many times that God has protected you. Uh, Many you are aware of, and then many, many more where you're not even aware of how God has protected you. And this doesn't, this isn't just car wrecks. I'm talking about bad relationships. I'm talking about uh, financial disaster. I'm talking about... um, Opportunities where you would walk into temptation that would would destroy you. Where God has protected you from those things. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 But the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Is that a promise of God? Yes, God will protect you, strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. Think of this psalm of ascents. Psalm 121. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. That going out and coming in, 
It's the same word that's used of David. I think it's, it's that, that military sort of, you're going to go out and come in, you're going to go and conquer and come back and return home. It's a beautiful picture of, of going into danger and then being released from it by God's providence. Now, do we believe this, that the Lord is our keeper? Or have we overreacted to, you know, the, the crazy abuses of the health and wealth, name it and claim it crowd? They think God will do their bidding, right? That's a little bit different than trusting that God is going to protect you. God is not there to do our bidding. Um, We think God has his affection set on his children and therefore will protect protect them, right? He will protect them. And... You know, and then as I was thinking about this, okay, God is my protector. God has protected me. God has promised that in my life, he will guard me and he will guide me. And then I started thinking, and how do we comprehend then what happened in that Texas church a few days ago? Did God fail to protect them? Did God fail to protect them? Well, it seems like it, because part of the protection that I really want from God is that he would, he would keep an armed intruder from shooting me in the face, right? That's the sort of protection we want from God. Did God fail to protect them? Did God's, was that outside of God's plan? Was that outside of God's will? Now you know I'm being and asking those sorts of questions, you know that that is not the case. Did God fail to protect them? The answer is no, and it has to be no, and it will always be no. He did not fail. Verse 7 of that psalm that I just read, He will keep your soul. He will keep your soul. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, right, the, the hymn, that He will keep your soul. Yes, there will be times when he provides you just with the shade you need because you're hot. There will be times also when he provides you with a a glass of water when you're just about to die of thirst. But there will be other times when he lets you die and he saves your soul. Right? Where he protects you by taking you out from this life. And so we we need not fear bloodthirsty gunmen if we know the Lord. If we know the Lord, men are not to be feared. Only God himself is to be feared because he can do more than than harm or kill the body. Remember, do not fear those who kill the body but aren't able to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Do you want that kind of protection? Do you want the kind of protection that God offers to his people right down to your soul. Well, then believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God will then never leave you or forsake you, though he may put you through the severest of trials. Do you want to risk it? Continue rejecting God and living for yourself. Then you will not... You know, then you will not have some man as your judge, but God Almighty as your judge. The Word of God says, 
And this is Jesus speaking. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. Right? The Father loves you because you love the Son. Those who don't love the Son then, what's, what's the conclusion? The Father does not love them. Again, the body they may kill, God's truth abides still, his kingdom is forever. God is a glorious father, but never forget that he is always a judge. And when terrible things around us go on, even by the hands of wicked men, we must remember this. We will stand before God one day, and judgment of our deeds will be the one order on the docket, and that will be far worse than any judgment if we're outside of Christ, than we could ever face in this life. That one, the one that comes after death. Everybody's fixated on life. Everybody's fixated on the here and now. But what comes is more substantial. What comes is more lasting. It's eternal, right? Those killed, I mean, those killed in that church suffered a terrible end. A terrible end. Nothing anybody, we would, we would hope anybody would ever have to experience. But get this, that wasn't the end for any of them. It was not the end for any of them. Not even for the gunman who thankfully was shot and died. Those who loved Jesus were welcomed into eternal life and glorious rest. Those who had been faking it who just went through the motions of going to church, entered something far worse than what they had experienced in the last moments of their lives. And they're still experiencing that torment. They might wish that someone would have brought the following passage to bear on their lives. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? You know, these they worse because they died? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's what Jesus said. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Shalom fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There's so many people, there's so many people in the pews of churches that go through the motions and fake their faith fake their faith, and then one day they'll drop dead and they'll realize it was no joke. It was no joke. They're going to stand before God. They die and then judgment. Right, so it's no joke. It's no, it, don't mess with your faith. Come to terms with Jesus Christ. Wrestle with these things. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, and then all these things can happen around you. And you can have great joy. You can have great peace. And you can face the coming judgment clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But if you're just going to fake it and go through the motions, you've got a terrible day coming. 
a terrible day coming. Is God your protector in all and every situation, no matter what happens to your body? Or is God your judge waiting, just waiting to pour out his wrath upon you because you refused very simply to do one thing, and that's just to love his son? You refused to love his son, offered to you for the forgiveness of your sins, and you refused. Do you want to know God's God's indefeatable, impenetrable protection? then believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ, his power over death. We thank you that he is our king. Father, I pray for those who who have merely flirted with Jesus through their lives, Father, that you would grant to them repentance. For the children here who have just thought of Jesus as as storybooks and things their parents talk about, I pray that your spirit would penetrate their hearts and that they would be grieving over their sins and crying out to Jesus and finding joy and peace and rest in him. I pray that they really, truly would desire to have the protection of a God whose wrath has been assuaged in the Son. And Father, so wake up sleepers. Wake up sleepers that we might worship you and praise you and ultimately rest in your presence through an eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.